You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would indeed inhabit uh, the ministry of your word, that we might behold you in all of your glory, and that we might uh, see you uh, as you are. And whenever we try to make you into something that you're not, that you would uh, thwart our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm wearing this... uh, because of uh, just the time turnover, there's no theological reason behind it. In fact, it's one of the least flattering, flattering, flattering pun intended, uh, flattering uh, articles of clothing uh, that I have. My children once said that I look like a grape, uh, and then uh, and then one of them also said that I look like Barney. Um, but. Um, well, we're in Hebrews 1, and I hope that last week you were able to uh, see the overload. Did he just take my water? This place is falling apart. Steal it from the preacher. Okay. I hope that you were a little bit on overload um, last week uh, because of the intensity of the first opening passage of the book of Hebrews. And we're actually going to backtrack a little bit because in order to make sense of what the author is trying to say about angels, uh, in fact, this is the passage that is going to come up for Christmas this year. And we typically only talk about angels when it comes to Christmas. Uh, But in order to make sense of what the author of the letter is trying to say, we have to back it up. So let's back it up. If you want to follow along, it is page... 1001 in your pew Bibles, and I am going um, to start uh, with um, verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited was more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels wins and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, laid, you Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and, you, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Now, the reason why this is such complete overload is the author of Hebrews couples the two great themes of the Bible together in an intense laser beam. And that is revelation and redemption. The revelation of God, which he initially says, the way this is how God spoke in days of old through our fathers and through the, to our fathers through the prophets. Right? So there was a sense of progressive revelation that came through the Old Testament, a more and more revealing. Because even though Jesus is explicitly throughout the Old Testament, he shows up in, in figures and in shadows and in forms. But he finally comes on the scene. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He finally comes on the scene, and the word is definitive in Jesus. And in these last days, the days that we're living in, that period between the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming, his second advent, which is right up there over my left shoulder, uh, God has spoken definitively through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more revelation beyond Jesus. There's no more revealed word. Everything that you need to know about God, you know in Jesus. Everything that you need to know about salvation is revealed in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, full stop. And so anytime someone would come up to you and say, well, I have a new revelation, you should just stop listening altogether. It, it's, it, it can't possibly be true. Now, that doesn't mean, as I said last week, that someone says, you know, God has really laid you on my heart recently, and here are some of the words that he has given me to give to you. And if those words are congruent with God's word, then you can take that as a word of encouragement, can't you? Uh, but it's, if someone comes up to you and basically gives you a Christian version of a fortune cookie, right, or, or just says, this is uh, a random word. I've used this example several times, but I think it's uh, apt because actually we're going to get to it in the book of Hebrews. A very sad situation where a young woman came to my last parish and uh, ran into uh, a member of our parish who uh, had been comforting the girl because her father had just, uh, had just died. And she wanted to speak to one of the pastors, and so this member ministered to this woman and then came up to me and said, this woman is very distraught. Her father has died, and she wants to talk to one of the pastors. And so as I made my way down, she said, I just want you to know that I've prayed with her, and I've told her, um, because she's also upset that her father may not have been a believer, so I told her not to worry, because after his death, he has three days to decide whether or not to become a Christian. And I stopped in my tracks. You said, what? Um, stuff from the book of Second Opinion uh, or anything that is actually directing, directly contradicting God's word. So in the book of Hebrews, we're going to find it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment. And I understand that this woman was trying to comfort the grieving daughter, but actually gave her a false sense of hope, which is leaves her in a much worse spot than when she even began grieving the loss of her father because now she's not just grieving the loss of her father, she's having to deal with a lie that has been given to her by this someone, although well-intentioned. And so if somebody's giving you a word and it's not jiving with the Bible, then we ought to rethink that. 
But the first step in being able to discern that and to be able to understand what God is saying as he's revealed himself to us in his word and how he has redeemed us through his living word, Jesus Christ, we have to get Jesus right. We have to understand Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. And so in verses 3 and 4, the author to the letter of the Hebrews lays out who Jesus is as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Right? He's the one who has come and shown us who the Father is. He's God's definitive word. He's the ultimate prophet. But he's not just come as a prophet, he's come to us as a priest because we see here that he is making, he made purification for sins. He came with a task, and that was for the purification of sins, which he did through his cross. And so we're going to get into that as we continue on in the book of Hebrews. And then now he sits, after making that purification, he sits down, he's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high where he reigns as a king. Nowhere else do we find in the Bible someone who is able to be the prophet, priest, and king. That overlap isn't existed. That is something that is given to Jesus himself. And so understanding Jesus in those terms is absolutely essential for us understanding the revelation of God and the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's overwhelming to us, and it ought to be. Because the facts that the author gives us here, and oftentimes the facts that the Bible give us, gives us, need interpreting. On their face, they're not that easy to make sense of. And so, think about it. We saw this with the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And you remember that he couldn't understand what he was reading. Now go back to Acts and look at that. Because many of us would probably be able to say, well, it makes complete and total sense. Isaiah the prophet is talking about Jesus. Why does it make sense to you and me? Well, in the first instance, the veil has been removed from our eyes. We're now able to see things with spiritual eyes. But two, someone has explained it to us. Just as in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, it required someone to explain it. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, okay, so what? Well, how then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is what Hugh Latimer said in the mid-16th century when he said, we must have preachers if we are to be saved. It doesn't mean that the preacher is the one saving you, but we do need help opening the scriptures sometimes, don't we? We do, and so in the same sense, to simply say, Jesus died for you, or that Jesus died on the cross. His death upon the cross, it's a bit opaque if you think about it 
If you were just to simply be there on that hill outside of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago and to see Jesus die, what would you think of it? How would you interpret it? Just by seeing him die on the cross, would it not make you think this is a sad and unfortunate thing? And yet, because God has given us the facts about what was actually happening upon the cross, the Word of God tells us that the, about the work of Christ and what it means. And on the one hand, yes, there is something sad and unfortunate about it, but for us to simply cling to that means to lose what God actually intended through Jesus' cross. So here he says a purification for sins. A purification for sins because the cross, this is why getting this is so important, understanding who Jesus is and what he is, if you get it just a little bit wrong, that's where you begin to veer off. And so someone who would say, and this is the hard thing about the life of the church, because oftentimes when you're dealing with individuals, even within the life of the church, or now outside of the life of the church, I mentioned people like Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons last week, the way that they've gotten where they've gone is just getting off track a little bit. So if you're actually to engage someone who is a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, what you'll find is that you're often using the same words but operating under entirely different definitions which gets confusing. And being good Christians, we typically say things like, well, I think we're pretty much saying the same thing, when in fact we're not. So for instance, a little bit closer to home, there are those who would want to say that Jesus' death on the cross was simply a display of God's love for us. It's how God shows us what love is and how to love. Is that false? No. But if that's all it is, you have a deficient view of Jesus and you certainly have a deficient view of the cross. That's why here in Hebrews 1 we have that the cross, that Jesus was a purification for sins. I mean, think of how nonsensical that would be to say this cross is simply emblematic of the love that God has for people. And a complete stranger is walking down the street here on 6th Avenue, and as they're about to pass by us, I take one of my daughters and I throw her out into the middle of the street and she gets struck by a car and dies. And the person would rightfully look on in horror and say, why in the world did you do that? And I said, because I love you. That's crazy. But what the, so the cross can't simply be, well, I just wanted to show you how much I loved you. Uh, but in fact, th there was something going on behind it that God's word tells us was going on behind it. And even though it's clear, because there on the cross, you have Jesus' final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which many preachers don't like to preach. Why? because they actually don't want to reckon with Jesus and the cross in the way that God reckons with Jesus and the cross. And so yes, the cross was God demonstrating his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But even in that verse we have while we were yet what? Sinners. That the cross deals with sin. 
Somebody has to deal with the issue. It's the elephant in the room. And if all the cross is, is a demonstration of God's love for us, then we're still dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Sin has to be reckoned with. And it's not an issue of the sins that we commit in everyday life, but in fact the deeper issue of sin that we have. The condition that we all suffer from. The Old Testament makes it very clear that the sacrifices, we'll see this again in Hebrews, uh, that the sacrifices of bulls and goats are not enough to deal and reckon with the issue of sin. In fact, the language that's often used in the Old Testament is that it covers up sins. Right, The blood covers up sins. And that's true to an extent. But Jesus' blood on the cross not only covers up sins, it removes them. Right? That's why one of the things that I love about our liturgy is that we pray that God would remit our sins. Not just forgive us our sins, because the cross is more than just forgiveness too. Now that sin has been dealt with, because all that we deserved, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, has been poured out upon Jesus. Because of that, we can now experience the forgiveness of God and fellowship with God, but not simply because we've been forgiven, but because our sins have been remitted. So to forgive is, you know, this is one of the things that I'm really trying to teach our daughters, which is very hard, uh, when we have them apologize to one another, the apology is not just important, but how the apology is received. Because all of us are prone when somebody apologizes to us to respond with, that's okay. Well, if it was okay, then why is the person apologizing in the first place? Right? The pop proper response to I'm sorry is, I forgive you. I accept your apology. And then you move on. Uh, but if you're like me and you're like St. Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrongs, I got a filing cabinet. And I'm a boy. I mean, when I was growing up, my brothers and I would punch each other in the noses and then 10 minutes later say, hey, you want to go ride bikes? My daughters say things like, you always. What do you mean I always or you never? What do you mean I never? Seven months ago, you did the same exact thing. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Um, and yet, we all do it. Uh, our relationships are marked by that. Even though you might, have been, you might have given a declaration of forgiveness, whatever it is that caused the issue is still there in the room. It may even be covered up. You know, the illustration that I... Uh, that I like to use is the time that I spilled grape juice on someone's brand new oriental carpet uh, at their home. I was 16 years old. Who serves grape juice to 16 year olds? And it was there on the carpet and uh, Mrs. Schultz, who owned the carpet, uh, immediately got down on her hands and knees and began to scrub and she began to say, it's all right, it's all right, which I thought she was saying to me but actually she was saying to herself. Uh, and, uh, and I remain close friends with, uh, with Katie, her daughter. And even though most of it came up, every time I went over to the Schultz's house, 
that stain might as well have been screaming at me. I mean, you really almost had to kind of look to be able to see it. And over the years, Mrs. Schultz would move a table, like a little end table over top of it, or, or a potted plant or something like that. And yet, there it was. But you understand that Mrs. Schultz forgave me, but there's the stain. What Jesus' cross does is it not only says, I forgive you, but the stain is gone. It's out of the room. It doesn't exist anymore. That Jesus actually has taken your sins and they're as far as the east is from the west. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And so you have to know who Jesus is and what he's done and what his cross has accomplished as well as what it means that he's a prophet, that he's the definitive word of God. And then also that he's a king, that he now reigns on high. What is Jesus doing now? He's sitting around. Why? He's finished. Right? He's, he's, there it is up there. He's done it all. There's nothing left to be done until he comes again. He is our advocate and there are other things that he's doing. He's the pr priest that has gone into the holiest of places that Hebrews will tell us about. Uh, but Jesus is done. And so now he simply reigns as a king. And we can rest in that knowledge. And so anytime we get bent out of shape thinking that our world is literally going to hell, and there's plenty of evidence to show us that that is indeed what's happening, we can actually rest easy because there's not one square inch of this world that doesn't belong to Jesus. Jesus is not looking down from his throne saying, oh gosh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Or what do I do now? Uh, but in fact, all of history is moving toward the redemption that he's going to apply and supply when he comes again. He's the king. Whether anybody acknowledges it or not, He's the king. There are lots of people right now in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland who don't like Queen Elizabeth II. And what's there not to like? But uh, they actually have begun to behave in a way that they're pretending that she doesn't exist uh, at all, which makes them look completely and totally foolish. Right? They're living in a dream world. They're living in a non-reality. And in the same way, uh, when we allow ourselves to become overwhelmed with fears, we're actually not focusing anymore and keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And it's easy to do. I mean, we see this when Jesus is walking on water and he calls Peter out. And Peter gets out of the boat. And remember, Peter starts to walk on water, but then what happens? He starts to look at the waves. He starts to take into consideration the wind. And immediately he begins to sink beneath the waves, cries out one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, which we all should have memorized by heart, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down, pulls them back up, and they get back into the boat. Right? Any anxiety that we experience about the direction of this world, that doesn't mean that we don't have compassion for those who are suffering injustice or anything else, but what it does mean uh, is that God is control and that he actually is, in spite of what it seems, working all things out for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In the same way that if we relied on our human eyes to look upon Jesus on the cross and try to make sense of it, 
we would think, well, this is just terrible. But in fact, we need spiritual eyes to behold Jesus as he is and to see a thing for what it is. And not just to know in our mind, to intellectually assent, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us, but that in fact it would seep down uh, deep in our hearts that we might know and feel, as the prayer book says, that the only name given under heaven and on earth for health and salvation is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim Palmer gave me a great quote uh, from Jonathan Edwards as he came in. And this is what Edwards had to say about the difference between knowing God and, um, and simply uh, being moved by God. The difference between knowing God and being moved is the difference between knowing fire and being burnt. Right, so just knowing fire burns is one thing, but actually experiencing the fire is something completely different. And the whole idea of Christianity, of God coming near us, is that the fire is not over there and we simply know about it, but actually our God is a consuming fire who envelops us. We're all burned in a good way. Edwards is right. Because if you get Jesus and what he's done for us, and you get... If you get him wrong as the prophet, priest, and king, if you lose focus on who he is in these two verses, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. What's the therefore pointing back to? These verses. If you get him wrong, then you're going to think all kinds of crazy things about Jesus. And it seems that those whom the author is writing to Think that Jesus is an angel, a messenger of God, a heavenly being that's been created uh, by God, but he's not the prophet, priest, and king that the Bible talks about. And as far-fetched as that may seem, actually, uh, that is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe uh, about Jesus. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it may not be that many in today's world uh, believe that Jesus is an angel, uh, but they do believe that he's a little bit less uh, than what he actually is. Uh, it's not simply an issue of mistaking Jesus for an angel or getting angels right, but it's about getting Jesus right. It's mistaking Jesus for anything that he is not. Anyone who makes Jesus less than God has missed it entirely and therefore has nothing to say worth hearing because the Jesus they preach is not prophet, priest, and king. That means that he cannot save you. And I don't know about you, but I want nothing to do with this Jesus who is the figment of an individual's imagination. But the author of Hebrews says that angels are real. They're messengers of God. They show up throughout uh, the entirety of the Bible. Uh, normally, as I said before, we think about angels around Christmas time because they, they're very present. Right? Gabriel comes and speaks to Mary. Uh, the heavenly host uh, sing to the shepherds. And we see uh, manifestations uh, throughout uh, the entirety of the Bible. And uh, we, get by, we get angels wrong uh, a lot. Uh, primarily, what is an angel's job? It's in their name. They're messengers. That's what they do. They're, they're messengers, which means they carry a message. This is why in Galatians, Paul says, even if an angel from heaven comes to you 
and tells you a gospel that is contrary to the gospel you have received, he's to be cursed. Don't listen to him. Oh, there we go. Thanks, Don. Uh, angels have one job, and that is to carry the messages that they've been given. They're not uh, allowed any color commentary. Uh, they simply go and they do uh, as uh, they are, are told. And often it can be a little bit coded and a little bit... Um, you know, go back and look at the interaction between Gabriel and Mary, because you can you can almost tell in Gabriel's message when she says, "How can this be since I'm a virgin?" He's like, "I don't know, but this is what I'm telling you, right? Take it up with the management, right? I'm just I'm just the messenger here." Uh, in the same way, they only have one message to give, and that is the message that God gives them. And they have other roles as well. You remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, there was one with a whole bunch of eyeballs and a flaming sword that was standing outside uh, the, the Garden of Eden to protect it from Adam and Eve or their descendants coming back in. And I'm sure we've got, we've got an angel up there. We've got a couple of them around. And you know, I mean, if they look nice. Right? I wouldn't mind so much running into one. I mean, the, the wings are a little bit... Uh, a little bit fierce, uh, but if you actually read the Bible and the descriptions that the Bible gives us of angels, uh, that's not what you want showing up in your living room. Uh, they're fearsome. They're, they, they also have the function of not just guarding, they're warriors uh, of sorts. And so uh, I hesitate, to, they certainly don't look like chubby little babies uh, flying around uh, or, or anything uh, of the like. Uh, they really are about uh, the business of God. And they are important, and they are a created order of beings. And yet Jesus is not one of them. He's far superior to them. And that's why the author of Hebrews starts quoting the Old Testament at length. If you're bored and want to go back to school and do a doctorate, Doing a doctorate on this first chapter of Hebrews would be much needed in unpacking all of these types of things, all of these Old Testament quotes about, um, about, the, um, about angels. Uh, but he goes on and on to say, I mean, of what angel did God ever say the following? And yet these are all things that the Old Testament has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is my son, that I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Furthermore, let all God's angels worship him. He makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your compassion. That he laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Of no angel has God ever said this to, except to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is without end. Because even the very creation of God is going to wear out like a garment, and like a robe you will roll them up, and like a garment they will be changed. 
And to no angel has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Because are not all ministering spirits, these messengers, angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here's the other thing about angels. Clearly, what the author of Hebrews is saying is he's using these Old Testament verses to point back to what he has said about Jesus as a prophet, priest, and a king. But also to understand that angels are there to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Who is that? Us. They actually minister to us. And even though the fellowship that they enjoy with God is something to behold, right? you can only imagine when we actually stand around the throne and there is this great company of angels singing praises to God, and yet do you understand because of the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king that our fellowship with God is actually going to be sweeter? That our relationship with God is more intimate than even that of the angels. In fact, the angel's job is to remind us of that to minister to us, to impress upon us, as Paul relate, as he sort of refers to in Galatians, one of their jobs is to impress upon us the truth of God's great love for us. That is what an angel's job is. And so if you get Jesus wrong, if you get his if you get this understanding of Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king wrong, even just a little bit, you're going to veer off ever so much. I experienced this as a kid. Uh, I, I decided that I really knew how to read a compass better than anybody else, and I was wrong. And I remember we only veered off a point, and yet after eight hours of heading in that direction, we became incredibly lost. Why? Because over time, you begin to move like this, don't you? You keep moving farther and farther and farther off. And in the same way, if we take our eyes off of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done for us, we come up with some real harebrained ideas and we get so far cast adrift and lose focus on him that we don't even know how to get back. Let us pray. Lord, we do pray that you would, through your word and Holy Spirit, impress upon us who you are as our prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And so that you would minister to us by the power of your spirit, through your word. And Lord, that you would send angels to attend to us, to hold our arms up in the midst of the battle of life and that we would ever keep our eyes fixed upon you, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.